So as we continue in our series on the promises of God, now in this subsection working through these letters to the churches in Revelation, here we have what I would call a word of assurance to a a tiny, struggling, weak church. Now, a word on Philadelphia, it's a city of great historical importance on the East Coast, but it's smelly, it's unpleasant, not a great place to be. Sorry, I'm being told that it was actually an ancient city in Asia Minor, uh, not the city of Philadelphia in America. Um, (laughs) It was, though, an ancient, prosperous, important city on the coast. It was called the Gateway to the East, where from the heart of the Roman Empire, these trade routes would pass right through Philadelphia into the eastern parts of the known world. So it was quite prosperous. It It was a city, though, that was prone to earthquakes, And it was right on the fault line. So throughout the history of those who are reading this in the church, they would have known times when the city would have been destroyed, where they would have had to flee and go out into the hills to escape uh, the destruction of their city by earthquakes. And the church there is small, but they're faithful. They're weak, but they're strong in Christ. The enemies that that come against them are coming from the outside. There's persecution, but they're actually quite strong on the inside. Other churches, the enemies are coming from the inside out, false teachers and people trying to lead them into apostasy. But this is a faithful church, even as they're small and not influential to the world around them. Uh, We read between the lines that they've been persecuted by the Jews, the synagogue of Satan, as Jesus calls them. Most likely, they've been expelled from the synagogue. They've been cast out and the door slammed in their face. Uh, This persecution that a lot of early Christian churches were experiencing uh, was heavy here in Philadelphia. As we dive into our text, uh, I want to invite you to open your Bible to Revelation 3. I want to actually start at the end in verse 13 which is a sentence that is repeated in every single one of these seven letters. But we haven't really had a chance to focus in on it. So I want to just spend a minute looking at this sentence at the end of our passage, chapter 3, verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a circular letter that's being written to seven different churches. All of them, remember, are reading each other's mail. So Jesus is saying this to them and implying that each one needs to hear not only the word for themselves, but they also need to hear the word that's being spoken to other churches. So we've heard this repeated for the last several weeks to us. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. And if you've been hearing this over and over again, but you haven't heard it, you haven't received it, it's not going to do you any good. The promises of God are given to you. God is always communicating. God is always speaking to us, saying, I will do this for you. I will build you. I will establish you. I will crown you. All these things he promises aren't going to do you any good if you're not willing to receive it. If you're not willing to hear it and to act upon it. This is a command, not a suggestion from the Lord Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. 
And it reminds me of our gospel reading from Matthew 7 that Reverend Alex just read, where Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Contrasted with those who hear the word of the Lord and don't do it, who build their house on a foundation of sand. So when the Spirit is speaking to you, as he is right now, have your hearts open and ready to receive so that you might withstand the things that come against you. That's what Jesus means when he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. All right, back to the beginning. Verse 7. Jesus, uh, again, does the self-identification, establishing himself as the Son of Man, the glorious Lord who's coming and speaking to all of these churches. He always opens with this self-identification. In the previous letters, he's drawn from that vision in chapter 1, drawn some aspect of himself, of his character, of his power, and, and used it to be relevant to what he's about to say to the church. Here he doesn't do that. He doesn't draw from the chapter 1. He is actually quoting from Isaiah 22. He is the one, the holy one, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus is the strong one who is so strong that nothing can undo or undermine or overcome the work that he has done. When he decides that a door is open, nothing is going to shut it. When he decides a door is shut, nothing can ever open it. So he goes on and says, I know your works. And in other letters, he elaborates on what that means, but he doesn't really say much about that now. But there's still the assurance that Jesus knows. He knows what we've done. He knows who we are. He knows what our struggles have been. He knows our temptations. He knows our works. And he says to them, Behold, I set before you an open door. The one who is the great door opener has an open door for them. Uh, now, in Paul uses the image of an open door sometimes in his letters to talk about an opportunity for mission. That the Lord had opened the door to him to go into another area to proclaim the gospel. We use that in, in our language, in our speech, about I have an open door, some opportunity in front of me. I, I think the context here actually would give us a different definition of what this open door is. Most likely, it's Jesus who holds open the door of the kingdom for us, who is inviting us through it. Most likely, this is about access and entrance into the heavenly kingdom, that new Jerusalem that Jesus is preparing for us. I hold before you an open door, Jesus says, inviting us into eternity with him. And to this church, who most likely, remember, the doors of the synagogue have been shut on them. They've been slammed in their face. But here, the door to the kingdom of God is held wide open by the one that no one can come against. No one can undo or undermine his work. So Jesus has this invitation for us to come into his kingdom. And this is important that he's opening the door for them because he says, I know you have but little power. 
they're small, they're weak, they're insignificant. They don't have many resources. They don't have much influence around them. By worldly appearances, they're not very useful. They're not very important. They're not very strong. So Jesus, to them, says, rely on my strength. I'm the one who's opening the door for you and preventing anyone from ever shutting it. This invitation to usher them into the kingdom will never fail. Even in their weakness, they have been faithful. They've kept his word and have not denied his name, Jesus says. Standing firm in the midst of persecutions and temptations, though they are weak, yet they are strong in the Lord. And enemies have come against them. The synagogue of Satan, those who say they're Jews and are not, have come against them and are persecuting them. But what does Jesus do? There's this incredible reversal of power that he does here. Those who persecuted them are going to come and bow down at their feet. He will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. So uh, an incredible reversal here. Those who were in power and rejected the church are now going to come and bow down at the feet of those whom they have rejected. And this can only come about by the God who, the, the, the stone that the builders rejected, he's become the chief cornerstone. The one who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. The one that's taken a, a cross, the symbol of torture and humiliation, and turned it into a symbol of victory. He's going to reverse their fortunes. He's going to shift the power dynamics. I'm reminded of Joseph and his brothers. Joseph, in, in the story of Genesis, who had this vision that his brothers would bow down before him. And they hated him for it. And they beat him. And they sold him into slavery. And then God sent him into Egypt, made him important, made him necessary. And his brothers came and bowed down before him, uh, fulfilling that vision and that prophecy. This is a vindication for this church in Philadelphia. They will learn that I have loved you, Jesus says. Those who are persecuting them, who say, God loves us, we're the true Jews. He, does, he despises you, uh, and, and you're not real, the real people of God. But Jesus is going to vindicate them by saying, they will learn that I have loved you. This vindication is coming from Jesus himself, not by anything the church has done or can do. And it, when we come face to face with the God who, who puts everything on his head, who reverses power structures, who, who transforms our situation, the invitation is not to any particular action here by the church, but it's to trust that Jesus is the one who will vindicate them. And they and we can simply rest in knowing that we are loved and that we will be proven right in the end. Sometimes when people come against us, when people reject us or push us away for our faith, there are moments that Jesus would call us to speak up and to stand firm for the sake of the gospel witness. But there are moments that Jesus would call us to be quiet and to wait upon him to vindicate us. 
Jumping ahead a little bit, Jesus says, I am coming soon. And in other letters, this is kind of, it takes on the tone of a warning when he says this. Behold, I'm coming soon. Better shape up your act. Better get your butt in gear because you're not going to like it when I come. Uh, But here he's using it as an encouragement, as a consolation. I'm coming soon. And the implication is that that will be the end of all their troubles. I am coming soon, and what he tells them is, hold fast to what you have. I want to pause on that phrase for just a minute. Hold fast to what you have. Now, you think that if, if you're in a difficult situation, if you're struggling under persecution or trials, that you want to look for a word from the Lord. You want direction. You want some kind of marching orders. Go do this. But Jesus just says, hold fast to what you have. He doesn't give them anything new. That everything that they already have is enough. You don't need any new direction. You don't need any new command. You have everything that you need, Jesus says, and hold fast to it. This is a church that has Jesus. They have Uh, experienced faithfulness to him. They have stuck to their guns. They've stuck to him throughout all their troubles. They have Jesus, and he says, hold fast to that. Hold on to Jesus, church. This is everything. This is all that we need. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need to endure every trial, every struggle. Trust him in that. If you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. So hold on to him. Because when you're building your house upon that rock, when the wind and the rain come against you, nothing can overcome you. Hold on to Jesus because he protects those who put their trust in him. Hold on to Jesus because he never rejects us, never fails us, never fails to satisfy us and to give us everything that we need. Hold fast to the one that you have. In order that no one may seize your crown, he says, that people, things, powers are trying to seize that from you. The world, the flesh, and the devil around us are trying to throw us off course. They're trying to cause us to lose our grip onto Jesus. Don't let them, he says. Don't let them throw you off. Don't let them seize what you are holding on to. If you're holding fast to Jesus, nothing can come against you. And we will receive his reward to the one who overcomes, the one who conquers through holding fast to him. He says, the reward, verse 12, is to make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Jesus says, I will do this. This is that promised language that he will do this. They will be a pillar in the temple of my God. And he's inviting them into the new Jerusalem, remember. We read later in Revelation that there actually is no temple. That God's people themselves will be the temple. God will dwell with them and they with him. They will be my people and I will be their God. There's no mediation of a temple that's necessary in the New Jerusalem. So when he says they will be a pillar in the temple, 
it's, it's a metaphor saying that they will be a, found, uh, a sign of foundational stability and a place of honor in the people of God. This small, weak, insignificant church is going to be exalted to a high place of foundational stability in the people of God because they have been faithful, because they've held fast to Jesus. He will do this for them. And again, there's the great reversal, the great switch and the power dynamics being turned on their head. That which was weak, Jesus exalts. Transitioning from a church of, of little power to a place of great honor. This is a transition, a transformation that happens when we walk through that open door that Jesus holds for us. And it's because of his strength. It's because of his power and working, not by their strength, not by our strength, not by our skill, not by our planning and strategy. Nothing we can do can bring us to that point. Only Jesus exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. What matters here is not your strength or your weakness. What matters is not your skill or wisdom. What matters is not your knowledge. What matters is your relationship to Jesus. This will be their dwelling place forever. He says, never shall he go out of it. It's a place that they will never have to flee for their safety like they're used to in a city that's prone to earthquakes. They will never need to leave. This is a place of real eternal security that can never fail them. He goes on to say, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. There's three new names that are given to the church that that has conquered, that has passed through that door, that has been exalted. Three new names, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and Jesus' own new name. And scholars are 100% certain that we have zero idea of what exactly this means or looks like. Uh, But the main idea is about identity, who we are and whose we are. When Jesus writes his name on you, he's saying, this one belongs to me. Um, I'm desperately trying to get my son Samuel, who's four and a half, to like the movie Toy Story, uh, which I loved as a kid. And we've watched it once, and I have not been able to convince him to watch it again. He this discerning four-and-a-half-year-old would much rather watch Cars for the 800th time. Uh, but in the movie Toy Story, Woody, the, the, the toy that has the place of high honor, is so proud because he has Andy's name written on his shoe. He knows whose he is, and to him that's a place of high honor. And even when the temptation comes of a flashy, new, really cool toy that would make him jealous and that would, that would make him fear for losing his status, he still has that name written on him. So pray for me and pray for Sam that he'll like Toy Story at some point. But the point is that when Jesus writes his name on you, he has you in his hand. He said, this one belongs to me. And now you can know who you are and whose you are as a foundational point of all that you are. We are given this gift of a new identity built upon God himself and upon our internal dwelling place with him. 
So I want you to imagine Jesus holding a door open for you. Jesus, the glorified risen one, the son of man who is eternal and everlasting and who has been exalted to the right hand of God, he holds open a door for you. And through this door is your everlasting uh, joy and peace and love. Everything that your heart deeply longs for is through that door that Jesus is holding wide open for you. Will you walk through it? Will you go through that door? Will you aim your life toward that door? Some of us have our sights set too low, far too low. If this is the game, let's make a deal. You've got three doors in front of you, and you know what's behind each door. You know that this door has a goat behind it. This door has a brand new car behind it. You're aiming for the goat. We have our sights set far too low. Some of us maybe are still trying to get through doors that have been slammed in our face. Insisting that this is the right place for me to be. This is where I belong. But it's been shut to you. And you, don't, you refuse to look at the door that is held wide open for you by the, the one to whom no one can shut it on him. He invites you in and invites you to walk toward it, to aim for that door that is far better than anything else that's in front of us. And while we wait to walk through that door, Jesus' word to us is simply hold fast to what you have. Because if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. If you have Jesus, there is nothing that can fail you. So what are you holding on to? What are you holding fast to? One of the things that's been striking me in my own heart to recognize in this pandemic is is holding on to the fact of this, this will be over at some point. And... Back when everything shut down in March, it was like, okay, this will be a few weeks. We'll hunker down. We'll get through it. We'll get back to normal. Holding on to that fact of returning to normal, of getting back to the way things were in February or whenever. And then, you know, we get to May, and it's like, okay, it's been a couple months. We're ready to get things over. We see a glimmer of hope on the horizon. Things starting to open up again. I can go out to restaurants Great, getting back to normal. And then we get shut down again. Grasping onto these moving goalposts here of when will we just get back to normal. I found myself holding on to that hope of getting back to normal. And it's grasping at sand. keeps slipping through our fingers. Jesus says, hold on to me. Hold on to me. If we hold fast to Jesus, he will never fail us. If we hold fast to Jesus, we will have everything that we need to endure every trial that comes our way. If we hold fast to Jesus, nothing can come against us. 
Hold fast to Jesus that he might build you into something beautiful and glorious. So he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.